3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It's currently 7am and it's the 21st of December uh, on Tuesday morning. And you're joined here by just me, Genevieve, this morning as me and my co-presenters are taking a little bit of a break for summer programming, but we're still delivering you uh, some very special shows over the next four weeks. Um, Coming up in today's show is a very exciting, I guess, collaboration of all of my favorite interviews and a new one that I did just last week uh, from 2021. And I'm really excited to share with you uh, some of them, recap a few that I think are really important and also to show you a new one that I think was extremely interesting. Um, But anyway, without further ado, uh, up first, we have an interview I did earlier this year with Dr. Sujatha Fernandez uh, on the, at the time, the current situation in Cuba, but I still think it's quite relevant today um, where there were protests uh, happening. And I think Sujatha does an incredible job at analyzing and cutting through some of the media misconceptions of how they're painting the current uh, climate in Cuba, especially in relation to COVID. So I'll be replaying that. And we'll also be replaying uh, Jutsna Siddharth uh, interview that I had with them about their play Clay, which was about caste and queer bodies in India. And I think it's Jotsna was such an incredible guest and such an incredible speaker, and it'll be lovely to revisit that discussion. And lastly, I have a new interview that I recorded just last week. Um, I had the pleasure of chatting to Shannon Zimmerman, who is a academic at RMIT University, and her fo- uh, focus, I guess, her research focuses on misogyny-motivated terrorism, and specifically looking into something called the manosphere, which we'll get into uh, later on in the show when we talk about that. Um, but it, it follows a recent study that she did that was aimed at recognizing. Uh, violent extremist ideology of incels. And uh, she spoke to us about what exactly are incels and what exactly is the manosphere. So that's all coming up very soon. And as always, we have uh, lots of tracks, lots of music. And yeah, keep it locked to 3CR. Summer programming is always fun and nice. And uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR Community Radio. Over summer, we'll be hearing lots of radical radio, including documentaries, special series, highlights from 2020, and much more. To check out our summer grid, go to 3cr.org.au slash summer specials. 
Earlier this year, I had the absolute pleasure of talking to uh, Professor Sujatha Fernandez. At the time where Cuba was experiencing what was labelled some of the worst protests it had seen this year, where thousands were taking to the streets to bring attention to the worsening shortages of food and medicine and overall the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. The economy was in a sharp downturn and many were concerned for the future, but it was not only COVID that has impacted the country. Uh, Sanctions from the US have always inhibited Cuba's ability to take part in the global economy and trade. And Sujatha joined us to discuss this current climate in Cuba and to give us some context on what brought Cuba to this point. Uh, Dr. Sujatha Fernandez is a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney and who has written numerous books and published articles on Cuba, and her research also combines social theory and political economy with in-depth and engaged ethnography of global social movements, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. I just wanted to start off by giving a bit of context to our listeners. Uh, These protests have been labelled as a result of ongoing economic woes uh, for Cuban citizens, obviously exacerbated due to COVID, but I guess I wanted to focus prior to the pandemic. What was going on in Cuba? Um, who, is in, who is in power and what kind of place is it to live and be a citizen in? So um, Cuba, in, in Cuba today, or prior to the pandemic, the leadership of the country was, uh, the country was being led by the Communist Party and Miguel Diaz-Canel, who is the leader of the Communist Party in Cuba and president of Cuba. And um, the he had taken over from Raul Castro and from the Castro brothers who ruled Cuba for a very long time since the 1959 Cuban revolution and represented to a strong extent a continuity with the policies of the Castro brothers and with the um, and that of the Cuban revolution. So um, prior to the pandemic, Cuba was undergoing a very difficult scenario um, related in part to the ways in which the sanctions, US sanctions had been tightened under President Trump, the US president, former US president, who um, had restricted travel, had greatly restricted remittances um, of Cuban Americans sending money back to their families. Um, And it had just made tourism much more difficult. And tourism is a lifeline for the Cuban economy and for many Cubans. And so in general, uh, ever since Trump came into office from 2016, Cuba had been going into quite a difficult period. It had also, it's one of its close allies, Venezuela, had also been, has also been experiencing a lot of troubles, internal political conflicts and, um, and also US sanctions. And that had also really made things more difficult on the island for Cubans. So um, so prior to the pandemic already, um, Cuba was experiencing a very difficult scenario. And within this, there were um, certain voices, one of which was the San Isidro movement, who um, had become increasingly vocal. Now, it's it's hard to pass out exactly. My own research has been looking at Cuban hip hop and the arts and all the kinds of very rich activism, feminist activism, Afro-Cuban activism that has taken place for years within Cuba. Um, and it's also been... Uh, 
um, you know, one of the issues that has that has worried people inside Cuba has also been intervention of the U.S. And the U.S. has definitely had a hand in trying to sponsor dissidents within Cuba to turn them against the government. So, so it can be a little hard to pass out sometimes what exactly is going on when you have both genuine movements for social change happening within the country, but you also have heavy ideological um, uh, strands from outside the country, particularly, um, you know, Republicans like Marco Rubio who try to jump on the bandwagon, who, you know, call for humanitarian intervention into Cuba, who, um, you know, and the active sponsorship by groups of USAID of rappers and others within Cuba with the aim of regime change. So we can't separate out these things. They're both part and parcel of what has been happening historically and what's happening today. For sure. It sounds like definitely a blend of both uh, outside intervention and internal uh, problems politically. But uh, just focusing on, because I really want to hone in on, especially the US um, a little bit later, but with COVID, obviously COVID's kind of amplified any sort of economic problems that uh, countries uh, had prior to COVID. Exactly what has been the impact on Cuba So Cuba, I would say at the beginning, um, handled COVID quite well. They uh, kept numbers low. They restricted tourism and entry to the country. And so they had a very low number of COVID deaths. They were able to maintain food supply. And and, uh, to some degree, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, they did quite well. They also have a very strong biotech industry. And Cuba has actually developed five vaccines, which is remarkable. If you think we're here in Australia and our government hasn't even managed to develop any vaccines, let alone provide adequate vaccines for the population. And such a tiny island under, you know, embargo from the United States has, you know, has managed to produce five vaccines of which the Abdallah vaccine is shown to have after three shots to have a 92% um, efficacy. So um, I would say that that all of that goes to show that, you know, that the focus, the Cuban focus on public health and on prioritising public health played a big role. I, you know, was in touch, I've been in touch with my close friends in Cuba throughout the pandemic and they were very, very um, gung-ho at first about how they were all going to pull through, about, you know, the real um, importance of having a strong public health sector and, uh, you know, they were, they were all sort of in it together and they were very proud of Cuba as a country, where, how it was dealing with the pandemic. Um, and so that was, that was how things were sort of more towards the beginning. And then, Uh, This is the problem is when you are a tiny country that is dependent on tourism, uh, Cuba couldn't survive. They couldn't survive. And yes, there were also internal issues. There were issues that, you know, the government was limiting um, the kinds of, you know, public, uh, public activities people could do public enterprise, they were limiting what people could bring into the country. there, you know, there were issues both from the government end and, as you mentioned before, also on the part of the sanctions that also restricted what, you know, was made available to Cubans. So a severe shortage of medicines, syringes, all of these things that are really essential right now were also being limited. So eventually Cuba had to open itself back up in a limited way to tourism and with tourism came the COVID cases. And so, you know, the country's been averaging six, 7,000 cases a day. Um, that's only the ones we know about as with everywhere else and so it's uh things have gotten worse now they have started from a while back they started um administering vaccines to people uh and first in trials and very quickly after the trials they the people who got placebos were given the actual vaccines and 
Um, and that is sort of helping somewhat, but the reality of the situation is it's just not possible for the majority of Cubans to isolate. They have to wait in lines for food. They need to participate in different forms of economic activity. They have to be on the streets and, and especially in poorer areas where it's very difficult for people to socially distance, the virus, especially with this new Delta variant, is really spreading. And so the sort of uh, pot boiler that we see right now, and I don't want to overemphasize that because while things are difficult and while there have been protests, it's nothing like what is being portrayed in the Western media of, you know, uh, massive, massive demonstrations going on week long and angry Cubans out in the streets. And I mean, that image that we're being presented is not true either. So, you know, what I've heard from most of my friends is, yes, there were protests. Yes, people were really angry. They went out in the streets. There was a whole range of reasons. There wasn't just one. They weren't all clamoring for Western freedom. They were, you know, a range of things, probably very, you know, at the forefront was the, the shortages, the difficulties, and the feeling that the government was not listening to them. And that, I think, was tying into some of the artistic movements we were seeing earlier so um, so I think that was really a key thing that we've seen in the last week is, uh, you know, this, this sort of um, pouring out of protest in response to, um, you know, an organic protest in response to the difficulties and the shortages. For sure. I think that's such an important point about the media, especially kind of blowing this out of proportion. And I was going to ask you about, because I... Um, saw on your Twitter that you had some friends in Cuba and just in terms of, yeah, what it was like to be in Cuba now, like what's it like for the people on the ground? Like what's the atmosphere like to kind of put it more into context? Yeah. So again, I think, you know, uh, people, uh, it's an extremely difficult time. Um, I have two friends who, um, you know, older Cuban women, uh, Afro-Cuban women who have, uh, one has been vaccinated, the other's not because she had an allergic reaction and um, and they're both, you know, saying that things are extremely difficult right now. It's, there's no medicines, there's no, it's very hard to get, you know, basic food supplies, that people are really hurting and people are really struggling. Um, they also said that, you know, they, they haven't seen the kind of widespread unrest that um, these, these friends who live in central Havana and Playa, which are working class neighbourhoods of the city, they haven't really seen the kind of widespread unrest that's being reported in the media. And they um, also are quite sceptical of... Um, of, uh, you know, that, that there are groups outside of Cuba. They believe that there are groups outside of Cuba who are trying to um, manipulate the protests, who are trying to put their own agenda onto what's happening in Cuba. So this is what my friends have been saying to me. But at the same time, I think one of my friends, you know, was just telling me that she's been very... Um, uh, disappointed and upset about the ways in which the protests have been represented in the Cuban media by the Cuban government. So uh, people have been represented, you know, young protesters who are angry and who are trying to, you know, express their frustrations are being uh, branded as delinquents and all kinds of racialized and negative language used to describe them. And um, rather than, you know, trying to listen to what they have, they have to say and trying to uh, be open, which I think to some extent in the last few days we have seen that the government has, um, you know, made certain changes. They've uh, uh, waived the limitations on goods that can be brought into the country. They're, you know, I think they're, they're realising that they have to 
let loose some of this pressure valve if they want to contain the protests and and, and help people. Um, but of course, there are also long-standing issues within the Cuban political system that uh, that would take you know bigger changes and a lot longer to be addressed. And I think the question remains: you know, is this the start of deeper changes for Cuba, which I remain skeptical can happen within the conditions that Cuba currently is, which is you know extreme shortage, extreme difficulty, and extreme vulnerability to the kind of manipulation and uh, short and, and sanctions from the north. Yeah, I wanted to focus in because what I'm finding a lot in media reports, especially in the West, there's a focus on, you know, the fact that Cuba is a communist state and the blame is kind of put on, you know, this is a failing of socialism and communism. And I guess it's kind of reminiscent of the US's refusal to accept, you know, that they lost the battle for Cuba and like... I guess the sanctions are kind of punishment or whatever, but um, have you found this as well, that, you know, there's this kind of war of words on communism that kind of deflects the conversation on, you know, the sanctions and the other issues? You know, I've seen this a lot um, in Cuba, but also in Venezuela. And I think that this is partly to do with the US. I, I think that this is not even that much to do with Cuba because within the US right now, I mean, we saw in the last presidential primaries, we saw Bernie Sanders, who's a candidate who spoke very strongly about, you know, socialism. We saw AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who also, you know, sees herself as a socialist. And the whole language of democratic socialism has entered the US right now in an unprecedented way. And so what I see is that a lot of these politicians, Republicans, politicians are kind of using Cuba and Venezuela as bogeymen as a way to say you know look at how horrible things are in this country look at you know all the shortages look at how people hate this system you know would you really want to have this kind of system in the US and so that's why I think you know yes I agree with you this is a debate right now that's taking place over communism and socialism but much of the debate in the media, I don't see as even being that much about Cuba. I think a lot of this is is about, you know, um, is about the US itself. And, and the challenge being faced right now in the US is, you know, as we have extreme environmental uh, degradation, you know, caused by climate change and, you know, massive inequalities caused by neoliberal capitalism. And people are just questioning. They're saying, how is capitalism possibly a sustainable system moving forward? Um, and what alternatives are there? And and so, you know, that sort of has led, I think, to uh, to some of this vitriol. For sure. Um, I wanted to mention your most recent book as well. Uh, for listeners, it's titled The Cuban Hustle, and uh, it explores the multitudinous ways artists, activists and ordinary Cubans have hustled to survive and express themselves in the aftermath of the Soviet Union's collapse. Um, you mentioned a little bit about the activism that's happening now and the solidarity in Cuba. Um, and I guess the question was, yeah, do you think what's, <laughs> what's happening now is an extension of Cuban resilience and solidarity? Yeah. So I, I have to say, I don't um, know a whole lot about the current makeup of, of these protests. And um, I think there's, okay, so there's both a continuity and a disjuncture. I think there's a continuity in the sense that um, a lot of the movements that I looked at, which were in the 1990s and in the last two decades, were uh, movements that really talk seriously about 
race and gender inequalities in Cuba, and they talked about, um, you know, uh, political issues, uh, political power, and uh, and they they sought to sort of put forward more independent and critical ways of thinking about the arts, about Cuban society. So, yes, to some extent, I think this all grows out of what we're seeing today. Grows out of that those movements that shed the that uh, sort of planted the initial seeds and um and as things get difficult i think you know we're seeing new groups emerge that are drawing on that legacy um, at the same time i don't want to overemphasize that connection as i think a lot of reporters today you know there was an op-ed piece by yuani sanchez the cuban blogger in the new york times and we've seen a lot of these pieces claiming that you know these artistic groups are the vanguard of artistic protest and i don't think that's true because at the same time i think there is a disjuncture between between um, the kinds of, uh, of critical uh, organisations that I work with, the Afro-Cuban groups, the, um, the artists, the rappers, that um, between them and between the groups that exist today, that there's not, you know, they don't see themselves as the same groups. They're not... Um, you know, they're not part of the same movement because those earlier groups, I think, uh, worked very long and very hard to preserve critical spaces within Cuba. And um, and I think there's a kind of anger and desperation um, now that is seeking to move beyond that, that's saying, you know, we don't really care. We want to, um, you know, if, if it means going to jail or whatever, we don't care about that. So so I don't want to overdraw the connection. And, and it's it's part of the reason why I haven't, you know, uh, talked a lot about this because it's it's hard for me to, um, to sort of uh, see the connections between those earlier earlier groups and the earlier activism and um, and the activism that's that's happening today, but I think you know it's probably important to recognise that there's that there's a lot going on and there's different things going on, and to try to reduce all that to any one um, you know sort of expression of solidarity or expression of something else is sorry not solidarity to one expression of um, you know freedom or uh, an expression of you know, uh, communism or whatever it is, I think would be reductionist. And we're seeing that now. I think part of my frustrations with us, with a forum like Twitter, for instance, is that it's very difficult to find nuanced takes on there. There are people who either say, um, you know, uh, we stand with the Cubans and, you know, we, we need the end of the blockade and we need to um, free Cuban and we need to, um, you know, denounce US imperialism. And then on the other hand, you have people saying this is the start of the new Cuban revolution and, you know, these people are out protesting for freedoms. And so it's this is what you see. The discourse on Twitter and in other social media is is very black and white like that. And I don't find a lot of space for nuanced. So I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you today because I think it's through you know, uh, these kind of takes that we can delve deeper and think more deeply about um, really, you know, what uh, what's going on in Cuba today. And, and like I said, I think um, there's no simple answers or no easy solutions or no easy connections to make. Um, I think it's an evolving situation and, uh, you know, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And especially what you said about Twitter, I definitely agree. You can't capture the complexity of a situation just with a tweet. And I mean, that's why these conversations are so important. And that's why having experts and lived experience people on is so important to actually say and get across the complexity of a certain situation. Um, just on an ending note, uh, did you have any for people that maybe wanted to read more or have uh, educate themselves 
ourselves more about Cuba? Did you have any resources uh, that you could let our listeners know about or books? So um, there's a fantastic website. Unfortunately, it's in Spanish. So I, I guess <laughs> nowadays you can get things translated, right? You just uh, can say translate this page. But there's a fantastic resource where I've been reading a lot of articles right now called On Cuba, O-N-C-U-B-A. It's a website um, that was started uh, by a group of really fantastic Cuban journalists in Cuba, and um, it's been publishing amazing stuff. In fact, my Cuban friends just send me the links all the time to articles from there. And um, so I would highly recommend that as a really good source for information about what's going on. And like I said, it's in Spanish. So if you don't speak Spanish, I think you can just look it up online and, and you know, Google can translate the page. Yeah. And you'll get an idea of what they're saying. Um, because honestly, I have found most of the mainstream media reporting, New York Times, Guardian, um, you know, all of these sources I've found to just not be in touch with what's going on on the ground in Cuba with not much idea, with just very heavily ideological kind of takes on things. And um, and I feel that really reading journalists in Cuba is, I think, the best way to, to sort of have a sense of what's going on. Definitely. And we can pop those links up on our website as well for um, people... Uh, well, thank you so much, Sujatha. Sure. Thank you so much for joining us. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for, I guess, grasping some of the complexity. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR. The regular breakfast team is taking a break, so we're bringing you highlights from 3CR's current affairs programs. corner of the land womankind arise women on the line a current affairs program devoted to women's voices covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security we do not accept the denial of our right because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au Next up, we're going to hear a track by one of my favourite artists and definitely not a stranger to Tuesday Breakfast. We play her a lot on the show. And that is Little Sims. Uh, She came out with a new album uh, this year, which, I mean, I think, as always, really epitomizes the time we live in now. And this is one of my favorite tracks off that one called Fear No Man. Rose gold. I just demonstrate greatness they cannot 
show. No new friends, can't be welcomed in my section. See that little zone there, that's a no-go. Tell me who you know, floating on the beat like this. You can't know respect to I ain't asking you to like this. You can always trust, I'll give you something here to vibe with. Heads turn when I pull up, looking stylish. Ain't your typical rapper, I ain't got my neck froze. Still your favorite artist, couldn't even step close. Heard they want my crown, but I ain't never stressed though. Cause to your career, that would be detrimental. Come on. listening to summer programming on 3CR. The regular programming team are taking a well-earned break. So we're bringing you highlights and specials as well as some of our favourite music. Summer programming on 3CR. 
Earlier this year, I had the pleasure of chatting to Jotsna Siddharth, who is an actor, self-taught artist, intersectional queer activist and writer, and who I actually spoke to all the way in India. And we spoke about a few things, but mostly we spoke about uh, their practice, which spreads across intersections of social art, activism, theatre, development in anti-caste, feminist and queer spaces. Their interests are multidisciplinary, experimental and fluid, from embodied practice conducting workshops and building community dialogue to supporting systems for making multiple medium work collaborative, intersectional and inclusive. Jotsna pushes for a better representation of Dalit and queer stories in the media and is also the brainchild behind Clay, a play discussing caste and body. They're on the show to talk about Clay, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. It was one of my favorites from this year. Thank you, Genevieve, for having me. Absolutely. I'm so happy that you can join us from India as well. Um, all right. To begin, I wanted to just start off with a rough overview um, and talk about yourself. Uh, I guess what sort of creative work you do and what inspires you to do it? Um, so I um, do multiple things, as you also introduced, and um I'm interested in in different forms and formats, and um, I also feel I am a person with low attention span, so I'm always intrigued by new things and and, and want to create um, intersections between between all of them. Um, and I'm an actor. I've been doing theater for a, for a while, but recently I started writing this play, um, which is called Clay. Uh, yeah, and I wanted to perform and bring the stories of of my community of of anti caste discourse and and the queer people um, through through this play and um, yeah and 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 perform and and see how how it is received. Yeah, definitely. I think um, maybe it would be good uh, to explain exactly just for our listeners. I'm not sure if they've ever heard um, anti caste feminist. Uh, feminism or that kind of um, realm of uh, discourse would you be able to explain exactly what that means for our audiences yeah so in in India and also in in the west um, uh, it is an assumption that uh, Indians are just Indians but um, Indians are also a kind of uh, divided into different castes and and that's a social hierarchy and uh, benefits and privileges that individuals receive because of the caste that they are born in. And um, uh, a lot of uh, people who are in different countries, uh, but Indians are mostly from the dominant castes. And, um, how do I say it's not exactly the same, but but they did a bit, but they enjoy a certain kind of social privilege and sanctions um, similar to white people in the U.S. It's not exactly the same, but just to put it simply, uh, this uh, and caste is is a system of oppression. So I belong to a community which comes from uh, a Dalit uh, caste, which which is uh, considered to be untouchable and and they're sort of lower in the strata of of the caste hierarchy within India and um, so asserting building resistance um, and talking about our systemic 
issues and oppression that has continued for decades is is a anti-caste discourse and resistance. Yeah, I think it's such an important topic to talk about. And I think it leads on to, I guess, where I want to focus on Clay, which is uh, your play that you wrote yourself. Could you tell us what the driving force was uh, when you decided to create, or sorry, write Clay? Yes, um, I think Clay, uh, so I started writing uh, Clay as just a form of um, anecdotes and experiences that I've had. I I do not find enough um, actors from my community who are also vocal about their social identities and location within the theater space. And very often there is a domination within the theater acting landscape in India where there is a a more sort of um, representation of the dominant caste. So, So you often don't hear either the stories or narratives of uh, people from Dalit community uh, and also not enough opportunities for actors from the community to find stories uh, to tell or perform. Uh, There are not uh, enough stories of our community that is being written by people from within the community. So this this play uh, is, is very important for many of those reasons. I wanted to also talk about the anti-caste queer discourse, but not in the way it is currently being talked about, to also see people as people, and but to also kind of recognize the systemic oppression that they continue to go through. So Clay um, is um, part anecdotal, part fictional uh, play that talks about the journey of um, Dalit queer woman in an urban city, but it also um, brings other intersections and stories of uh, people and their childhood and memories and and, and such. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful way of collaborating intersectionality, bringing it to like a human level and a lived experience level, which is obviously your lived experience as well. Uh, You did mention briefly, but maybe you could go into a little bit more detail without giving too much away exactly the storyline behind Clay and you kind of mentioned as well some of the themes but would you like to just elaborate a little bit on some of the storyline and the themes? Yeah um, so uh, Clay itself is 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 a symbolic uh, representation of earth and body and the community that I come from is very much involved in the physical labor and also um, uh, cremating dead bodies and and a lot of other work that that is kind of reserved for the community I come from because of the caste system, and and when I use the metaphor of clay or earth, it it talks about the whole cycle of how of life and death and how the community is very much part of uh, contributing to society from some from from birth to death and and doing all that kind of emotional intellectual physical labor that other people don't want to uh, or don't do it anyway um so in the play i'm talking about it's a devised play so i'm working with my body to create material and and then use that material to to give shape uh, in form of performance 
and while also substantiating that with the stories, um, with the narrative, and with the uh, with the very active engagement of the audience. So it breaks the fourth wall as well, where audience is not just watching the play but also participating in it from the beginning till till the end. Yeah, and maybe just on a personal level, is there anything that you felt? was important or almost even cathartic about writing clay? Like, was it an enjoyable experience, did you find? I think uh, writing and also devising while I'm working with my uh, body is, is ex- yeah, you're right. It's extremely, and I've also realized it's an extremely meditative, meditative and cathartic process because when you're working with your body, you realize and, and you get more conscious about the trauma that's stored in your body and it comes out in very different forms. So, you know, breakdowns and also um, realizations of the collective trauma and collective memory of violence that the community has gone through for decades and and the discrimination it all is stored in your body so it so there is an individual uh, trauma but it, there's also a collective trauma and all kind of comes out in in a theater space when you're engaging with your body and when you're also going through the script for me theater is a is that healing um, space which allows repressed suppressed emotions to come out and use that to tell a story and i that's why i find theater very powerful and i find Clay to be um, one of the most important work that I probably will do and hopefully will also um, create and open that space for other people to also find resonance and understand this system of oppression. Yeah, definitely. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with the beauty of art in terms of, you know, personally and relating to the audience. Um, And I wanted to mention as well, I was reading um, some of your description on clay and it uh, mentioned, you know, it's one of the first few independent plays performed to center anti-caste queer narrative in Hindi and English. And I guess I just wanted to ask why are creative projects like this so important for you personally and I guess for society more broadly? I think um, there is still a a very active invisibilization and erasure of um, Dalit community uh, and their assertions and their voices, especially in the creative spaces, because there's always been a distinction that's being made between high art and low art. And high art was obviously always thought to be uh, performed and, and, and reserved for people who come from caste privileged locations. But when you look at the history of performance, um, Dalit people have always been at the forefront of creating that history of performance as well in India. Uh, and I'm assuming South Asia as well. But uh, what happens is that um, there are very few grants and there are very few resources that are available, especially in in theater spaces that would um, support this kind of work because um, there is also inherent caste bias and um, lack of interest to support actors and theater makers from marginalized communities. Um, there is also a lack of representation for the within the theater spaces from my community. And it, that makes it very difficult to, to find uh, support for this kind of work. So, um, so this work is important for many of those reasons, but also to create this 
history of culture in making while also expanding the resource to to share that uh, there has to be a collective ownership of of a play of a work like this because it's um because the system of oppression is not an individual uh, burden to resolve and it cannot be so a work like this must find collective ownership and resources so that we can partake into that process of co-creating this performance and not just just going there to watch as an audience so i think it's trying to do multiple things through this performance yeah definitely and i think that leads on to um focusing on the fundraiser which has been organized for the play especially your mention on um not making it such an individualized thing and making it a shared thing um what does the fundraiser i guess aim to do for clay and why is it important for people to support theater like clay I think to uh, again expand the um theater and acting landscape to say that there are people from different marginalized identities and their lives and stories have not found space so when you support work like this you also allow for different kind of stories and realities to emerge and um this resource is used um to actually pay people a decent amount in the theater because in india um uh, theater is often voluntarily people don't get paid and a lot of um, or they get paid very poorly so so this resource will go to the production and to actually uh, paying people who are involved in the whole process of theater making and and at the same time um have a platform to to watch new stories to watch interesting stories to to learn about society as a whole and not just only focus on certain kind of stories or only stories of people who come from extremely privileged positions all the time so i think it kind of diversify our understanding of how we imagine society as well i was just going to say stories are one of the most powerful tools that we can use and i think yeah recentering the story on people that haven't had the opportunity to tell their stories is also something that's truly important as well so i really commend you on that it sounds absolutely amazing i wish i could watch it live but i can't so it's Luciano and Georgia Keats supported by the Australian Queer Archive present Queerways retracing Melbourne's queer footprint Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter. You're back on Tuesday Breakfast, 3CR Community Radio. We're going to jump into another song now by one of my favourite artists, as a, again, who also released new music this year, uh, and that is Cleo Soul, uh, released an absolutely phenomenal album. I'd highly recommend people go listen to her new album. I think, I mean, it made me cry a lot, but she really captures an emotional lyricism that 
I think a lot of people can relate to, and especially because it was such a difficult year for so many, I think it really just tapped into my uh, emotional side. Um, but I find that this song that I'm about to play is one of her more uplifting, optimistic uh, tracks, and it's called 23. Don't need to lie, I know you can't survive, but it feels like sometimes. 
You're listening to summer programming on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Discussions around online discrimination and misogyny has been increasing the more we integrate our lives in the virtual sphere of the internet and social media. With many strategies proposed to combat digital discrimination, however, little progress in effectively addressing it, we are mostly left wondering how we can prevent further extremist views from turning into acts of hate speech online and even acts of terrorism. Professor Shannon Zimmerman, a postdoctoral research fellow at RMIT University, focuses her research on misogyny-motivated terrorism, specifically looking at the online groups in the manosphere. In a recent study, Shannon and her fellow researchers aimed at investigating how we can recognize the violent extremist ideology of incels. Shannon is on the show today to discuss this research, the ins and outs of the manosphere, and what exactly an incel is. Thank you so much for joining us, Shannon. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to have you on. And I think a good place to start and what makes up a huge part of your research is this term called the manosphere. Could you just explain to our audience, what is the manosphere? Absolutely. So the manosphere is what we would call like a digital ecosystem. It's this collection of chat rooms, blogs, um, bulletin boards for posting subreddits on Reddit or even individual websites. And they're all interlinked through hyperlinks um, and they share the same sort of ideology and the same sort of language. And the connecting ideology between all of the sites that are within the manosphere is this really virulent type of misogyny. So of course, misogyny is a hatred of women, but the type of misogyny that you find on the manosphere uh, takes it almost a step beyond. So it's not just a hatred of women, it's the understanding or the idea that women and feminism, like feminism has gone too far. And now the world exists in a, an environment that either patriarchy was never a thing or feminine has gone too far and it's become the reverse and now men are discriminated against rather than women. And so there's this hate and this anger uh, towards women in general, rather than specific individuals, but just women in general, and the ideas of feminism. And it's found throughout all of the different levels of the manosphere. And sort of that's what it is. It's an online space only. There's no physical representation of it. But it's all of these websites that are linked through this type of misogyny. And uh, the misogyny actually even has a name. It's called the red pill, as they say. And so it's a uh, they're referring to the movie The Matrix. So there's that scene where Morpheus offers Neo the opportunity to take the red pill or the blue pill. And the red pill will sort of wake him up to reality. And the blue pill will allow him to go back into the fantasy world he's been living in. Well, the people in the manosphere say, if you take the red pill, it's going to awaken you to the, um, the fallacy and the, the, the discrimination that men experience. And so they say they've taken the red pill and they've now awakened to what they call feminism's misandry, um, and they want to uh, find a way to combat it. And that's sort of the unifying ideology of the manosphere. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think um, it's a common theme that's happening online at the moment with a lot of, you know, when you talk about red-pilled and like, you know, QAnon or a lot of conspiracy theories uh, coming up, especially um, a breeding ground online. Um, in terms of, I guess, why, I guess maybe your interpretation of why you are, we are seeing such an abundance of them now and um is there a certain reason and exactly what 
uh, are they trying to uh, rectify? Uh, what are they trying to battle against with feminism? And are they trying to retreat back to a time where it didn't exist? So, um, yeah, if you could explain in more detail a little bit about that. Sure. So the reason we're seeing the manosphere is because of its nature as an online space. So there are a couple of factors that make it a particularly unique space, but also a particularly dangerous space. Um, most of the websites offer um, operate under what a, a zero identity um, sort of aspect. So everyone's anonymous or they have avatars or, or unidentifiable usernames. So they can post whatever they want. And of course, there's a liberating factor. This allows people to freely express themselves, but it also means there's no consequences for what they say. Um, and then that can result, unfortunately, in sort of those echo chambers. So because of the nature of the internet itself, we've got these algorithms that help search engines sort of recommend sites that already tend to cater to what you prefer to see. And if you have underlying biases, say misogyny, uh, the, the AI actually recognizes these biases and it will help amplify them to some extent, but also there's self-selection and that's the main one. People want to be on these sites and they tend to click the links that appeal to them, which tend to be more and more misogynistic. So it, it acts as a online tool for radicalization to some, some extent. A lot of times people come onto the manosphere and they're men that are, um, they're they're lonely they're searching for some kind of connection they're trying they're struggling in their day-to-day -day lives either it's with um they're feeling like they're being discriminated against at work but oftentimes it's they want to be in um, relationships uh, romantic or sexual with women and they're unable to do this they're having difficulty connecting with people in general so they go to these websites and instead of finding support they actually get introduced to this kind of misogyny that gives them someone to blame for why they feel so disenfranchised. And what it does is it helps cultivate what we call a sense of entitlement, aggrieved entitlement. Men are told, well, you should have had the access to a wife and a well-paying job um, based on this hegemonic idea of masculinity. That's kind of like the idealized 1950s male breadwinner idea of masculinity where the man's the, he's powerful and noble and has a wife at home and is sort of in charge, the king of the castle, and they blame feminism for destroying that idea. Now, of course, that idea didn't necessarily exist to begin with, but it's sort of front and foremost in their minds. And they're told that, well, you, the reason you don't have these things is feminism, and they resent the fact that they don't have these things. They feel entitled to these things, and they blame women and feminism for denying them these things. And that's why it can get so toxic. So rather than them turning to ways to interact better with people, to develop social skills, to, to do some kind of um, you know, self-care or uh, self-help, they, they instead just turn that blame and that anger to women. And the longer it's frustrated, the worse it gets until it turns into some different types of rage that are expressed online or can be expressed in the real world. Yes. Yeah. And in terms of the different, I guess, people that would are more most likely to engage with the manosphere, um, who are the people that do you think uh, would be utilizing this uh, online sphere the most? Yeah, it's difficult to say because everything is anonymous, but from polls that have been done online, people self-reporting. The idea is that the majority of people on the manosphere, they tend to be male. They're not necessarily white. There's actually quite a few people who are um, from, say, the Indian subcontinent or from, uh, from Europe. 
um, a lot of North Africans, of course, but also Australia supposedly has a huge portion of people that are on the manosphere. Um, and they're men generally between the ages of um, uh, anywhere from like 16 to 50, depending on where they are in the manosphere. So the manosphere actually has, it's been identified as having sort of four tribes or four major groups. And the most common one, the one that's sort of the most socially acceptable is the men's rights activists. And many people have probably even heard of them. They, they, they emerged the same times as, as the women's rights movement, sort of along the same idea. So women were being oppressed under patriarchy, but so were men. They weren't allowed to have strong relationships with their children. They weren't allowed to express emotion. But somewhere along the way, the men's rights groups split and they were the ones that were promoting, you know, overthrowing patriarchy. But then there are the others that were saying, wait, no, feminism's gone too far. And now men are being discriminated against. And they started out still being legitimate, but saying, well, why is, um, you know, in the United States, why can only men be conscripted for war? And why do men often lose court cases for um, to keep their children in cases of divorce? So some very legitimate issues um, around legal discrimination against men. But it kind of cascaded into almost ridiculousness. So now they hold court cases against bars that have ladies nights because they feel like they're being discriminated against. Um, and they've become a very virulent um, anti anything that protects women um, legally. They go against women's networking groups. So anything that is exclusively for women, even if it's meant to empower women, they see it as discriminating against men. Um, and these are the groups that you'll see that often um, align themselves with sort of the alt-right um, because, again, they, sort of, they foster that traditional masculinity that's very... Um, that's a very key part of the alt-right movements as well. So we've got the men's rights movements. We have the pickup artists, which I think we've all heard of, the ones who have their techniques to pick up the ladies at the bar. Mm -hmm. um, but they do it by um, almost, they grade women, you know, so they're not really human beings. They're seen as targets. They're, liter they're, they're hunted in a way. And they do it by sort of saying, well, content, consent, uh, it's maybe not as important. They literally just want to score. So for they call it the game. And they dehumanize women to justify the techniques that they use. Um, then from the pickup artists, we have a group called Men Going Their Own Way, which people may not have heard of. And that's for a reason, because these are men that have decided that they don't want to engage in society it's uh, too dangerous. It's too dangerous to engage in relationships with women or even working with women because they're afraid that they're going to be discriminated against in some way. Um, so they've kind of separated themselves. And then the last group, of course, is the involuntary celibates, which no one heard, had heard of in 2014. Um, but nowadays, most people have at least heard of the term, often, unfortunately, in conjunction with a mass attack of some kind. And I'm happy to talk about those, uh, that particular group more in detail later if you're interested. That was the first half of my interview with Professor Shannon Zimmerman on the manosphere and incels. And she just finished speaking about some of the different groups that are found on the manospheres, including incels. We're just going to take a little quick break, but we'll be back with the second half of that interview where Shannon will dive straight into what exactly incels are and what danger they pose to society. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.org. 
www.gov.au Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. It's summer programming on 3CR, and there's so many reasons to stay tuned. Shorts, features, documentaries, new and unusual music, and highlights from 2020. To check out our summer grid, go to 3cr.org.au slash summer specials. You're back on Tuesday Breakfast. This is the summer programming special, and we're going to play another song now. And I don't think 2021 would have been anything without the breakthrough hits from Pink Panthers, who still mostly remains quite a mystery to a lot of people. She has a very, uh, I guess, quiet persona online. And you know what? I very much respect that. But uh, she has made some absolutely incredible songs this year that everyone has absolutely loved and I think particularly palated towards the TikTok frenzy that I think everyone was under a little bit this year but this is one of my favorite songs off her debut EP and it's called Passion. to summer programming on 3CR. The regular breakfast team is taking a break, so we're bringing you highlights from 3CR's current affairs programs. Representing. 
You're on 3CR and we're going to jump straight back into the second half of my conversation with Professor Shannon Zimmerman. Here, we're going to analyze the question of incels, exactly what they are and the role they play in the manosphere. And Professor Zimmerman does an incredible job, I think, of taking a nuanced approach with analyzing these individuals and exactly what danger they cause and how we can help the situation. Yeah, as you said, the, I guess, most extremist uh, group is the incels and it's uh, the focal point of your study. Um, Yeah, if you could go into more detail about what is an incel and how do they operate in the manosphere? So the incels are sort of the the deepest embedded group in, in what we would call the manosphere. And they're a really interesting group because by and large, they're an absolutely harmless group of people who are lonely and simply wish to connect with people. So the, the term incel actually started in 1993 for, uh, and it was started by a, a lesbian woman who started the Involuntary Celibates Club. It was a website where people got together to explore like why they were having trouble. They wanted to be in romantic relationships and they weren't being successful. And so they were trying to figure out ways to connect. And it was, it was in search of a sense of belonging. You know, it's something that a lot of us, particularly in this digital and COVID age, um, really are struggling to do. What happened, though, is over time, this term was taken over um, by men who were struggling to have these relationships, and then it became they weren't trying to improve their ways of having these relationships. They were blaming women for not being able to have them, and so it's turned into something completely different, and what has happened is a lot of people join these groups because they're searching for that sense of belonging, and instead, they're fed an ideology that not only says women are to blame for the reason you can't um, connect with people, but really women aren't even human. They're subhuman, they're disposable. Um, They talk about women as commodities. That's how virulent their misogyny is. They talk about having government mandated girlfriends or, um, you know, having uh, legalized prostitution or making rape on private property legal. Uh, Some really horrific things that dehumanize women. And they do this because they're sexually frustrated. They feel like they have a right to women's bodies and they don't. Um, What makes incels so dangerous is they've gone beyond taking the red pill, which says, you know, it's this virulent misogyny, but they've also decided they've, they've gone on to taking what's called the black pill. And that means not only are they in this horrible, what they would call gynocentric world where men are discriminated against, but they're at the very bottom of the totem pole. So at the top are what they call Stacy's and Chad's. These are attractive, successful people. And they think, oh, the Chad's get all of the Stacy's. And they actually get all most of the women in general because thanks to the sexual revolution and birth control, women can sleep with as many men as they want. And so they, they say, well, it's Chad's getting all the sex and the rest of us are destined to have these sad, loveless lives. Um, and they think it's all based on genetics. So it's something that's inevitable. Either you're, you're essentially born an incel and there's nothing you can do about it, but that creates a sense of nihilism, a sense of hopelessness. They think there's no way for their situation to get better. And so they've come up with three things to do about that. They call it um, cope, hope, or rope. Which are, coping is finding coping mechanisms. You know, they can, they find solace in friends, video games, Hoping is where they do try and do some kind of self-improvement. So that's going to the gym, getting a pet, um, trying to find a friend's group online. Coping is where they sort of accept 
their situation. So they might just turn to video games or find some other mechanism that allows them to feel some kind of satisfaction in their life. And then rope is uh, kind of what the analogy sounds like. It's um, suicidal ideation. They often, incels often talk about suicide Although it seems like a lot of people enter into the incel lifestyle and then come out the other side. Um, so they do make it through. It's more of a period of their life. Like many of us, people go mm -hmm. through periods. A lot of incels are younger. So they're maybe 16 to 21. Um, and they're able to sort of cope long enough to realize that there's alternatives out there. What has happened is these ones that have decided that there's nothing worth living for and there's nothing they can do, um, most of them don't do anything about it. They just sit with that information. But some of them in a very rare, um, very rare cases will will decide that they want to um, try and change the world that they live in, or at least make a statement for the plight of the incels by undertaking mass violence attacks. And the most well known of those would be the first major one, although it's probably not the first one, the first major one that was facilitated by the Manosphere, and that would be Elliot Rogers' attack in Isla Vista, where he killed six people before taking his own life. And uh, he said it was because, you know, he, he lived a loveless existence. He blamed women. He called it his day of retribution. Um, and he specifically targeted a sorority of what he called the hottest girls on campus because he wanted to punish them for not giving him access to their bodies. Uh, and he left a manifesto that has become sort of the doctrine of the incels. And so subsequent incels, the ones that have done mass violence attacks, um, often quote uh, uh, Roger, which is unfortunate, they've canonized him. He's now called St. Elliot. So there's this whole religious sort of pseudo-political ideology that's fomented in incel spaces to justify dehumanization of women and the violence against women. And so we've had the, the Toronto van attack in 2018 where 10 people died. That was an incel attack. And they say that there have been at least seven attacks that we know of that are directly undertaken by incels that have killed more than 50 people. There's probably quite a few more that have been indirectly influenced or inspired by the incel ideology or the ideologies of the manosphere, but they're not quite as directly connected. Mm -hmm. I think you make some very interesting points in that, especially tying this into sort of a, a religious act almost. And I think that kind of explains, you know, this social isolation and, you know, for the much part, like society can be very isolating mm -hmm. um, at points and like the um, drive to want to belong somewhere. And that drive is obviously um tainted with nihilism and so to find something that uh gives them some sense of identity or purpose even though it's completely discriminatory um I guess it it makes sense in that way um but I wanted to dwell on a little bit how um you talk about the reluctance of a lot of media enterprises to not uh label some of these incel attacks as terrorist ones um you talked a little bit about what kind of violence uh, that we're talking about uh, and when we speak of incel attacks. And I just wanted to ask, you know, what are the consequences of these attacks not being regarded as acts of terrorism? That's a really good question. And it's quite a nuanced issue. I can see why um, the police and other authorities don't want to label them as terrorism. And to some extent, at least the initial incel attacks aren't because terrorism is supposed to have a political motive. So it's supposed to be attack, you know, sort of, we often think of terrorists as networked groups 
that plan attacks that undertake them. Now, incels, of course, are networked by nature. I mean, they only exist online, but the attacks that happen, these are individuals, oftentimes they just lurk on these websites, so they may not even post. They're just seeped in the ideas and the ideology, and they become inspired to act. But it's not planned in any way. There's no broader political outcome. At least that's not the way it was initially. Um, and so these attacks were considered lone wolves, or they were, often they were saying, well, this, this individual had a history of mental illness, and that may often be the case. So terrorism has to have a political motivation um, for it to sort of be identified as terrorism, or at least it has in most places. Recently, I believe in Canada, they actually charged a young man with a terrorist offense, even though he didn't have a broader political agenda, but his idea was he, he wanted to terrorize groups in general. And so they said that that counted as terrorism. So there's there's some shifting on what terrorism might actually mean. But as incels have evolved as a group, because they very much are evolving as a group, they have started to kind of articulate a political idea of what they want. Um, they want changes. They want to be recognized as having uh, grievances that are legitimate. Now, these are still very nascent. It seems that they're still trying to comes to terms with it's not a unified group as we would say because again part of the problem of being online is they can't get together and have discussions about this sort of things as they unravel on posting threads um, but it is becoming more political and a lot of the groups in the manosphere definitely are political like the men's rights movement so there's some connections there that mean the attack the attacks are more and more beginning to resemble terrorism the problem with not labeling them as terrorism is they get labeled as things like it's a domestic violence matter, or it's just someone with mental illness, and they don't acknowledge that there is this entire online digital ecosystem that is radicalizing young men into thinking that violence against women, either on the individual or on the mass level, is, is appropriate, or they're even justified to do it because they have these, these grievances, but these grievances in many cases are simply manufactured, they're matters of perspective. So when we don't give it a label that gets people's attention, it ends up being pushed into, um, unfortunately, the marginalized section of violence against women, which doesn't attract the attention that it deserves. So people are advocating to label it as terrorism so that we do do something about it. Um, now that's problematic because it's very difficult to address these online groups. Mm. Uh, when it's all online, they're anonymous. It's very difficult to track them, but it's also difficult to prevent or de-radicalize these groups. So in, we'd have to go to the source. You'd have to have programs in schools that help people understand how to, to connect socially, so mental health services, um, domestic violence services, because a lot of these people might have maybe not incels per se, but people in the men's rights movements and other parts of the manosphere will have histories of domestic violence. So it's a big undertaking mm -hmm. to deal with the groups in the manosphere and the undertaking would generally have to be in real life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think making the point about, you know, this isn't just rogue individuals, it's kind of become a, its whole own little epidemic online. Um, and I wanted to ask, I find this a really interesting question um, just because it's been happening a lot lately and that's with, um, you know, deplatforming online and, you know, what we saw with the Trump administration, especially, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, social media groups like Twitter and YouTube and Reddit deplatforming what they see as extremist ideology and hate speech. Um, do you think this is an effective method, especially when it comes to incels? 
I think it's it's a double-edged sword. So there has been the talk of saying, well, why don't we just you know close down these 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 particular sites that make up the manosphere? And to some extent, they have. So they did shut down the original incel subreddit um, on Reddit, which is notoriously you know relaxed when it comes to moderation. So the fact that they did shut it down. Um, was a big thing. And then they've sort of shut down every subsequent incel subreddit that has arisen because of violation of terms they were advocating for direct violence against women. I think it's something that has to be used very strategically because for many of these individuals, this is their social connection. And the trick is, or I guess the catch is that people that are in incel spaces, these spaces are more harmful to them than it is in general, for most people, they're the most likely to have negative repercussions on their mental health, on the way they interact with other people, on their social skills. But deplatforming them cuts these people adrift. And so they'll, what's happened in the past is they've just gone to other sites. And so they will just reform elsewhere. And some of these sites will have more permissive moderation. They may even be driven to the dark web, which has no moderation. So we could be making the problem worse. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sort of the, you you want to know where things are so you can deal with them. So you have to make sure that they're visible enough that we can acknowledge this is what's happening and find some ways to address it. We also don't want it to be mainstream. So yeah, when it comes to people who are advocating for violence, um, like directly and overtly, they should, I think it is, it is prudent to, to stop those because people, what they may say that it's just for, for the lulls, as they call it, or just to get attention, but inevitably there will be someone out there that, that takes it for real and they want to act on it. So those should be addressed, but just environments where these people gather, we, would, we want to be very careful about um, taking away those platforms because it is a place for them to connect with other people it might be more useful to engage in those platforms and find more constructive ways to direct their energies if possible. Not many of them are privately run, so there are limits on how we do that. Um, It's quite complicated. I can see why it's not a clear-cut issue and we don't have good legislation on it. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a good point. I always like, like with the double-edged sword thing, you know, as much as you want to remove that, um, speech from getting out there and I guess that discrimination you also kind of are adding fuel to the fire with it a little bit and I like the point about you know here they are we know they're there and we can kind of mitigate it that way um, but also one of the solutions that um, was proposed to mitigate the spread of the manosphere is through policies um, how can this help and what should these policies look like? That's a great question and it would depend on which group in the manosphere you're trying to address because they kind of go around they go about uh pursuing their agendas in different ways but if you're going to look at um the incels or even just a lot of the actors on the manosphere things like one of the ways that they enact their misogynist ideology is they will undertake online attacks or digital attacks i don't know if you've heard about gamergate but it's where the online communities attacked particular uh individual women um but quite virulently. So they would hack their accounts. They would dox them, which is publishing of their own personal information without their consent online. And the repercussions for these actions are are almost nothing. So they're technically illegal, but no one follows up to stop people or to punish people who do things like 
issue rape threats to people online or harass people online or dox them or hack them. It's difficult, but those that's the kind of legislation we need. We need there to be people that enforce appropriate types of behavior online because there have been studies that have shown that online abuse is just as traumatic as real life abuse. You know, people can get PTSD, they can suffer from anxiety and depression. So pretending like it's just fake because it's digital um, makes this problem worse. It perpetuates the idea that these individuals have that they're safe and untouchable. And what we need to do is say, you know, this can be a space for you, but it's a space for everybody else. And this level of misogyny and this type of behavior is not going to work. So we need to find ways to have policies um, that prevent that and that can be enforced, whether it's through the through legal mechanisms or through having um, the private companies agree to do certain to take certain steps to limit what was like hate speech or uh, things like that. But it's so far we've been very unsuccessful. Like Twitter, mm-hmm. they won't they won't block things where people are physically threatening harm on others because they're like, well, it doesn't go against our terms and conditions. So uh, that's the kind of policy I think would be most effective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is tricky when, you know, we have all of these tech companies run, uh, run privately and um, in, on a global scale as well. So trying to tie them Exactly, to- they're transnational yeah. and yeah. it makes it so much harder for any type of legislation to work because if they're not based in your company, how much are they held to account by what's done on their websites? Yeah. Um, and it's something that I think people, with, especially with cyber crime and cyber terrorism, uh, we're really becoming aware of. And it's just important that they acknowledge that there's things like, you know, misogyny as well that also need to be uh, kept in the light as we look at building legislation on this. Yeah, definitely. And I think just to wrap things up, um, just as a final question, and you touched on some other, I guess, alternative solutions a little bit earlier with, you know, actually talking to these individuals um, on a social level, not on an online level. But um, what other solutions do you think would be worth discussing? It's so hard to say because we know so little yeah. about uh, incels. Um, dealing with things like a lot of it is this, the social environment we live in. Like we can deal with pickup artists by making that type of rhetoric around dating. So the meat market rhetoric, um, the scores of women, the, the sexism that's just around dating in general, making it no longer socially acceptable. I mean, these guys, their techniques don't really work anyway, but really making them not work is a great way to sort of mitigate that. So don't reward the bad behavior that they're perpetuating. But for the incels, it really is making sure that they have resources to things that will actually help them make their situation better because in seldom which is their state of being and the misogyny that they're presented the red pill and then the black pill um, they're false promises they're not going to help these individuals feel more connected they're not going to help these individuals form meaningful relationships with other people and particularly not with women so we need to find some way to make the resources there and present and accessible for them so that they can do these things and for a lot of them they self-identify as um, maybe being neurodiverse or just not having, um, you know, great childhood. They they have challenges, legitimate challenges that they need to overcome. And we just need to have the social supports in place for them that, that help them overcome that. But at the same time, we need to be very clear that misogyny of this level and the dehumanization of women is not acceptable. So you can deter them from going down that road, but also give them the alternatives 
um, so they have another choice because at the moment they feel like this is their only option. So I think that would be the best thing we can do. And I know that Australia has been struggling with issues of misogyny in the public sphere. So we need to make it clear that, you know, it's not okay. This rhetoric isn't okay. It's poisoning people. Um, and it's actually destroying their lives. Misogyny is much more harmful, I think, sometimes on its adherence as believers than women, although it's horrifically harmful on women. Yeah. Um, so we just need to make it clear that this is a, it's a toxic way of looking at the world. It's not going to help you. Here's other ways to do it. You know, this is, yeah. um, don't believe the false promise that it's not your fault. It's women's fault. There's other things out there. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and I think that's such a great point to end on and what a great discussion. I mean, I didn't know what the term manosphere <laughs> meant at all. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Shannon, and, uh, chatting to us about that. It's been such a pleasure. No, it's been my pleasure and thank you for having me. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. You have been listening to 3CR Summer Programming. Keep your summer radical and stay tuned to 3CR.